We're rolling already. This is Dan Lebitard joining this podcast. You have betrayed me at the start. I did not know because we were native recording. I acted relaxed as if I did not know that we were on camera or otherwise. And I was just speaking to you honestly. You can't use that. that was, no, we have to. That's that was the best. deeply off the record. How often are you starting sentences when I left ESPN these days? Very few have done it with the grace that you did it uh, with. I don't think many have been able to uh, leap off the safety of that platform the way that you did. But it is a bit of a landmark, right? When you say when I left ESPN, I'm guessing seismically it's one of the uh, one of the posts in your journey that there are about uh, seven or eight of them throughout the, the course of time that you can mark. And that would be one of them. Oh, for sure. And it's funny because this podcast that I started, I think we started early July. I've You're now like the seventh ex-teammate, ex-ESPN person. And, and we'll give you a half hour to air your grievances. Dan and Keith did so. Um, Jamel. Look at the delight. Look at the delight on your face. <laughs> no, Look at the delight no, on your face. No, no, you no. love trotting us out here no. to to say all the things. You've always been kind in public to ESPN. You've said you've gotten to run this route, which is a great route to run. <laughs> oh, I'm so grateful to be a sportscaster and be paid so much money. Uh, and you have, if you have any hurt, you have disguised it well. No, well, my point was I never intended any of these conversations to to dwell so much Oh, and then there was the time this happened and they treated me this way and this happened because, you know, you have your own story. But it wasn't with intentions more, you know, these are all successful people who I happen to work with who are friends. Why wouldn't I ask them to be on the show? It kind of makes sense, right? And But in each case, when you tell your story about what happened to you, why did you leave, it's going to sound like you're bashing it, but I'm not really... Again, I think the ESPN has great programming, great people. They're going to continue to do well. They minimized me and thought I wasn't of value to them anymore, and so I left. Like, that's the end of that story, really. I don't need to go into detail about the time Norby did this or so-and-so called me in for that because it doesn't even matter, right? And that's why I've said you're hand you've handled this with great grace because many people in our position – this is the vanity business, right? And – uh, many people in our position wrap up a lot of their identity on, hey, I'm a television person. I, I you know, of course, it's wrapping a lot of insecurities. Uh, there's a lot of armor around the insecurities. You've you've been someone who has had perspective about those things, but you know the television business. And many of the people who have left have been, when they're told, you're making a very practical business point. You're saying, well, I thought they that I was of this value. They thought I was of that value. It's a business. I can leave. That's uh, that's as if you're made of wiring. You're not made of <laughs> wiring, but but it's a practical way of looking at it. That is their choice. They're allowed to do it. And if your identity is not that tied up in this, that to be to make you lopsided, you've got other interests. You're a grown man. You've experienced things. You know, the world is larger than this stupid, stupid thing that they have paid us to do things for for a long time. And you have a worldview that uh, that is evolved. And I would say that in this world, there are many that are not. Well, I I mean, part of the attachment, it, it, am I going to say it was cool or not cool to say I work for you? Absolutely it was. Like, you got to stand on the sideline at NFL games and act cool and point at things and that kind of access that ESPN uh, provided us, right? Like, like it held some power. You could get interviews that you might not get for not be working there. 
But once you've done it for a long time, hopefully people respect you just like you, right? You you quickly set out and kind of did the same thing, just not for them, right? Isn't that essentially what you've continued to do and you're getting paid well for it. you? Got a good sponsor. Well, I've always been uh, grateful and and absurdly absurd, absurdly flattered that anybody would listen to anything we have to say about anyone. That the microphones would matter at all. That people want to talk to us. Ultimately, Kenny. I mean, you played, you played at a high level, your body betrayed you, or you could have probably played professionally at quarterback, but most of us are just sports fans who don't know the beast quite as well as the people who come up through the belly of it. And so just being near it without the risk is, is something to, to be near the glowing nuclear orb of where athleticism resides without any of the physical pain or harm, where you could just <laughs> go over and ask questions and, and and be near this this heightened state of living, right? The Gladiator Coliseum. I don't have to actually sprain my ankle or run around there. Or wait, I don't even know how hurt you. You busted your leg in a way. You don't have to do any of that. You could just get near the smell of it without getting any of it on you. It's a pretty good. Uh, it's a pretty good gift to to have as a career. Yeah, my leg still hurts. Actually, I we've talked about this on your show when you had me as a guest, right? We talked about my foundation for the veterans because I ruined my ankle playing football and that was 1980. That's 42 years ago. That's how old I am. I'm older than 42, but I meant, you know what I'm saying? I was trying to reference that year. I ushered the Ollie Holmes fight just before breaking my leg. 1980, Caesar's Palace. That's a great sentence. What a great sentence that you just <laughs> uttered right there. I ushered the Ali Holmes fight is a monster sentence. <laughs> we got to be the football players at UNLV and the other athletes got to be ushers at the prize fights back in the day when they used to put up a temporary uh, boxing ring and the where the pools are now at Caesars. They used to put up this this one week long boxing thing. They'd put it up and there'd be fans and they'd take it down and back to a swimming pool. And how thrilled are you to bring it? Not to interview you, but how thrilled are you to bring it full circle with the Vegas relationships? It's at pretty this bizarre. Point? Yeah. But but no, I know it's bizarre. But how thrilled are you to see, to go from what that was to see everything that's changed over forty years, Las Vegas gambling, everything, and for you to find a space within that? Uh, it it's got to be surreal. Not yeah. it's got to be beyond bizarre. Well, when I was recruited by UNLV. The first place they took me, I went out with a couple of coaches. They took me out on the town, Caesars Palace. They used to have a moving beltway on, I guess it would be the south side. Yes. And and I distinctly remember going in there. And, uh, whoa, Caesars Palace. I've heard of this place. And my dad worked for the airlines, so he'd fly down to Vegas for $3. And, you know, I'd been to Vegas, in fact, when I was in third grade. My dad took me there. So it was funny because you come back on the first day of school, and the teacher's like, so whatever do you do this summer? And one kid went to church camp, another kid's scouting trip. And I, I get up, yeah, my dad took me to Vegas. <laughs> I, that's not the part of that story. Did I hear you correctly? That yes. you'd fly to Vegas for $3? Uh, $6 first class. So when I was a kid, my dad worked for you. Well, he worked there all his life. Got up at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. And, and worked as the airline guy, the passenger agent guy, right? We used to call it Dad's Airport when we were little. SeaTac Airport. <laughs> you could drive on Highway 99 and take a left and you're at the airport. Now it's, you know, a bunch of freeways and whatnot. But yeah, so we as a family could go to Hawaii for like $30. Four kids, mom and dad, six times three is uh, 18, <laughs> twice, $36, I guess it was. They had to pay nice. for the hotels, but 
Yeah, I and so when I was in college, I still had my airline privileges when I ended up going to UNLV. I would fly Vegas to Chicago, Chicago to Seattle. Just because when you're 19, it's fucking cool to be in first class on an airplane. Still is, but <laughs> particularly when you're 19, I'd go to Chicago to turn around and go back flights. to Seattle. Yeah, just let's make the flights longer so I can just be in first class. And just chill and have free beer and, and, and hit on flight attendants, even though it never really worked out that great. You know, I kind of like the way you've turned this, and I'm fine if you want to take over and just run this fucking thing because you do it for a living and and your questions are good. I wanted to go back, though, to the, your ESPN days. I was always an admirer. I didn't really know you. I can't even say I really know you that well. We're I think we're friends from a distance. We haven't really hung out, but we've communicated enough. Like, oh, I get that guy. I like that guy. And we've done a little bit of work. I've together. been at the track with you a couple of times. I've always enjoyed seeing you with my California friends when you swagger into a USC football game or something with <laughs> your going entourage. This week. Yeah. And so, so yes, we've seen each other. And I've always been an admirer of both your work and the fact that you've done it your way with a quirkiness that is uh, that is a voice not a lot of people have had in the history of this uh, medium. So the, the respect is mutual. Well, I loved... And I want to know how you carved it out because you started in print. We'll get to that. But how did you transfer over? Who was it at ESPN? I'm assuming it might have been Skipper, John Skipper, maybe not. Like, hey, let's give this guy the show. And it's going to be really fucking weird, but it's going to be really good. It's going to be really smart. Look stupid, but be really smart at the same time. When you created that thing you created and you brought your crazy cast of friends that came in and acted as panelists and your dad tricking people into the fake high five thing, you know, like there was a lot going on there. How did that even come to be? Uh, the starting point on this is journalism. And you were at ESPN when ESPN decided to sort of traffic in the credibility of newspapers to give themselves a little bit more of a journalistic backbone, right? By around the horn, pardon the interruption. They could have Washington Post, Miami Herald. Sure. They can have uh, the credibility of newspapers. Uh, and so sports writers started getting paid and television became uh, a moneyed medium for us. But I was always very happy in Miami, just doing Pardon the Interruption, had an afternoon drive time show, was writing a column. That was enough for me. Uh, and I was told ESPN for many years that I didn't want to go there, didn't want to work for a corporation, didn't want the suffocations or lack of freedom that would come from a Disney or anyone else. And so I said, I won't go to ESPN or anywhere else unless I can do it from Miami. And I was always told that could not be done from Miami, that I had to go to New York or Los Angeles or somewhere else. And I'm like, that's okay. Then I'll just stay here unless somebody can make something more Miami than what I already got. And then eventually it was Skipper and he was trying to diversify ESPN, hire a few uh, fire starters. He uh, decided, well, how about this deal? You could do the show on the beach. You could do it with your father. You could do your brother will do the art. Uh, it'll be about family. It'll be about Miami. It'll be more Miami than what you presently have, because I was fine just be in Miami. I didn't have any great need to be a national person, but he put a job in front of me that was more Miami than the one that I had, uh, at least in part because he wanted a Hispanic voice, I imagine, on uh, television. And mine is Dan Lebitard. Dan with an American first name and Lebitard with a French first name. We were like, hmm. well, let's get the guy with the cartoonish accent to make sure that they don't <laughs> think that this is a French person's show. That this is, and so my father, that was Eric Ridehome and a team of producers in Washington who created, I really didn't know what I wanted the show to be. I, they were just like, 
you want to do something? And I was like, okay. And I had very little to do with what it then became after that, other than, you know, sitting in the middle of it. Well, you certainly drove the bus with this cast of characters around you. And it was quirky and it was interesting. Like, hopefully you took that as a compliment. It looked silly, but yet it was really smart. Oh, no, at the it was ridiculous. Time. No, I, I did take it as a compliment because it looked apparently absurd. At the beginning, it was in a 50s kitchen <laughs> with an antique refrigerator in it. Uh, like, no, it wasn't. It, it looked purposely stupid, awkward. Why is this on television? This shouldn't be on television. I'm furious as I'm, you know, asking the producers at ESPN, can we just do 10 minutes on a bear, you know, falling on a trampoline? And they're like, no, we got to do sports. <laughs> and I'm like, let's do fewer sports. There's sports every Everywhere. Let's just do funny videos. Let's do dumb things because we don't have to respect this stupid thing. It's all stupid. Everything we're doing here is stupid. Why do we have to respect the stupid thing? It reminded me a little bit um, of when I was a kid, there were a couple of Saturday morning cartoons that were very avant-garde, you know, like HR Puff and stuff. And what was the other one of those guys rolling around on, or they were on like three wheelers. What the fuck was that show called? Uh, it, I, it was like, it was absurd for being on ESPN. That's, I guess, really the point. Like, every, the other ones, the interview shows, the argument shows, bringing on sports writers to talk about elite quarterbacks, you know, you guys didn't do that. You just, oh, hey. but Kenny, but you're, th certainly this must have spoken to you the same way that your stuff spoke to me, which is you're, you're bemused by the seriousness of all of it. You're bemused by, wait a minute, why are we taking all this so seriously? It's unbelievably dumb. Everything we're doing. What, a, what are you getting indignant about? We're, <laughs> we're just, it's right. I mean, you're, you had to be confused. You had to feel all the time at ESPN looking around. It doesn't mean you don't love sports, but it's like, what the hell is the matter with you people? It's not that serious. Never mind sports, because the only thing, the only thing that should be less serious than sports that takes itself more seriously than sport is television. Right. Like, let me put a tube in front of somebody that records their actions. And who is it? It's Kenny Mayne. <laughs> Look at him. There he is being <laughs> a guy who's reading the things that happened elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, I always said when, cause I never really, broke down what I did. I still don't. I, I only when asked, but since we're kind of on the subject, I, I think the best way I described it, and I think you did it similarly, still do, you're kind of making fun of the fact that you're on TV doing this, but yet you're trying to do it really well at the same time, right? You're laughing at how absurd it is, is it that we're running all these graphics about, you know, Shohei Otani or Mike Trout or whatever the hell it is we're doing at the time that this is so damn important, yet I'm going to say it in a silly way to minimize and to pull myself out of the fact, no, I'm not being that serious. I'm, I'm clowning on the fact that we're giving you this information at the well, same time. Well, how did that go over though? When you would show people you, cause you did it more than most where you were peeling back the absurdity of television saying, and here's a graphics package meant to right. uh, titillate you with, uh, <laughs> with all of its titillating numbers. And you would tell people like, look, I'm, I'm here as part of the machine, but I'm also going to show you, this is stupid. This, there's this, the underbelly of this thing is ridiculous. I think I'd, I'd say I, I am now going to wow you with my statistical prowess as I, you know, read this card that the reason, <laughs> and I, like you said, I, I played football growing up. I loved all the sports. I was a Sonics fan. Still am. They're going to come back. I hope I'm, you know, I care about my Seattle teams. I enjoy a good athletic performance like anybody, but if the Seahawks win or lose, Gretchen still mostly likes me on Monday, right? Like, I just know it. I'm very political. Relative to all that, it just doesn't matter. And I'd never understood the art. How do you guys, they, I just was in an airport the other day, 
and I'm looking up at the screen. I forget which show it was. And they're arguing about who leads the MVP race. And they'd played like three fucking games. Who cares who le- And the MVP race is always so overblown anyway in all sports, right? I think the dirty secret, right, that people uh, – because you, you just said – you just said I worked with a lot of great people and made a lot of great content. Uh, and I don't believe that when you're making as much television as has to be made at some place like ESPN that much of it is going to be great. Just because you're making so much of it and almost all of it only exists as infomercials meant to take you – to the next game they're broadcasting. Almost yeah. every single thing is just another QVC infomercial <laughs> that's disguised as something else and might be slightly different because the four people on there are better at it than the four people before that or the two people mm-hmm. after that or the six people after that or the three people after that. But they're all QVC infomercial commercials so that we can get the 20 million number on Monday night. So that, that so that all those shows can do 300, 400, 500, 600,000 people and then all of a sudden one night when we're showing games they're going to be a, they're going to be a million gamblers there they call it shoulder programming these days they changed the name of it right um but you, you know the next gen thing that was relatively new advent uh what like five years ago i i didn't know that was just like a computer i thought they were like these kind of cool hipster guys you know that play vinyl records and drink craft beer and have knit caps all the time even when it's warm out those guys <laughs> that they made up some cool shit. Hey, did you know that, you know, so-and-so ran 83 yards on this play in order to, you know, gain 20? Or, oh, the next-gen right? stats are great. You have more information at your disposal than ever before. You can know more useless information than you ever had. When the uh, when the Bills, <laughs> I think, no, when the Ravens played the Dolphins, I read that their secondary, the Ravens' secondary, ran more steps than had ever been run in an NFL football game that uh, <laughs> there were more miles covered or ground covered by footsteps in that game by cornerback who, who were chasing Tariq Hill poorly than mm-hmm. any game ever played. That's like exit velo. Have you ever cared about exit velo? Have you talked about that? Oh, like I you- love, I look, I, I, I love Michael Lewis when he made his way into the middle of the secrets of baseball and the Oakland A's and Moneyball. I have been reading Bill James abstracts uh, since I was six years old. I love new information, more information on sports that will make you uh, smarter about what it is that you're watching. But I also find funny that no matter how informed you are, every once in a while you're watching a game in London and it doubled double doinks off of both of the, the goalposts uh, and and the crossbar and you're like i don't know anything whatever i thought i knew about this thing is stupid it's just uh i didn't know anything i the only thing i know is that i don't know what's your dad doing right now uh, he is aging and enjoying the retirement pace of uh, my mother being around saying, why don't you get out and do something? And him saying, I quit television because I wanted to retire. Uh, my father uh, <laughs> it was like, that. Dan, our son, uh, was riding me like an old mule into retirement. I wanted to quit years before now. I just want to putter around the house. I want people to stop recording my comments, and I want to be old in peace. Who didn't love on Highly Questionable when he would repeatedly, repeatedly, and everybody knew it was coming, but he could still pull it off, right? And then he'd pull back and just rub his hair and leave the person hanging 
How great a bit was that? And to have it just go over and over and over. Uh, well, this is how great a bit it was. It I dedicated my life to the craft of journalism, to trying to leave a legacy of well-reported and fairly researched and humane and decent and compassionate things written about the athletes of our time. And everyone asks me about that. And you asked me about that, and it's and it's the fake handshake, and it was fun. And, and it works. No, of course, no, you're absolutely right. It's the same reason. At some point, we just dropped a bunch of chickens from the roof after mm -hmm. he would do it because it does work as television. Television as a construct didn't need to bother with all of the uh, all of the schooling I did. Just do a fake handshake, drop some <laughs> chickens from the roof. It's as old as comedy itself. Well, am I hearing? that you feel like you let yourself down for not staying in the hard and righteous journalism that you studied for because <laughs> selling selling my soul i sold my soul in order to have my dad do a show in his second language okay it's in its second language and the signature move was to fake people out on a handshake <laughs> so that i can run across the room and grab some sort of <laughs> fireworks cannon that shot off confetti and chickens could fall from the sky that's what i did with my journalism career Who didn't well see i started out I wanted to be like Ken Burns. I wanted to work for Frontline by now. Frontline didn't exist back then. I was playing football, but studying journalism, English, uh, rhetorical theory, political science. Like I was going to be very serious. I was going to go out in the world, be very serious and do very serious journalism. <laughs> After a few years in Seattle as a kind of a gopher, I worked my way up and I finally got put on TV. Um, about two years later, we were a very small station, Monday through Friday. We always joked, if there's news on the weekends, it's news to us. But they added a <laughs> Saturday and Sunday show, and the news director, Jack Eddy, said, you played football, you're doing sports. Against my will, I didn't want to. I never wanted to do sports broadcasting. I wanted to be, like I said, you know, being doing politics, doing history, doing documentaries. Sports became so fun, a little bit like chickens falling from the sky and your dad's fake handshake, I oh Seahawks games are way more fun than city council meetings, Husky games, Mariner games, Sonics, and I just drifted and sold my soul and and became. Oh, I saw that. Fan. So I man, I still remember the first time I ever got paid for uh, journalism twenty five dollars for an article covering a uh, city council meeting about sewage for the River Cities Gazette. Of course, and I and I left there. I must have been I don't know nineteen years old or something. I'm like I don't want to do that. That's not that. Uh, I, I, my life cannot be writing about sewage. Instead, I'll just cover it and then belch it out and <clears throat> uh, and sell it to the masses. I'll make my own sewage. My, my first TV job, I got $50 to do the cover story for the, you know, those shows on PBS that air like on two o'clock on a Sunday, the, the community affairs show. So Lee Winston was the host and I was his <laughs> intern. I got $50 and I was doing like serious journalism, or at least I was trying to. You know, prostitution in Las Vegas. Uh, the the hookers saw that I had a wireless mic. I was talking to them on the street, trying to get sound, and she starts screaming at me on the street, like you know, pointing at my mic and cussing me out. Me and the kid that was shooting, he's like twelve <laughs> years old. We jumped in the van and took off, left our fucking tripod in the middle of the Las Vegas Strip because we were we thought the pimp was going to kill us at that point. We abandoned our equipment to save yeah. our lives. Uh -huh. But I still turned in a dynamite four-minute, 
you know, <laughs> story about prostitution. I, I think this is, this right here is the lane for you. Okay. When I think of Caesar's palace and what it is to uh, appeal to the 24 to 34 demo, tell stories about the time that you made $25 an article and the time that you got paid $50 to work. <laughs> I think this is <laughs> you and me telling old timey stories about being chased by pimps for $50 <laughs> is well, the future. I, it's the future. I love, I, I just proposed this story. I interviewed Soledad O'Brien, who I admire a great deal. And that we were talking about our first jobs and I totally appreciate all the suffering and all the effort that it took to get to whatever level, wherever the hell I got eventually, because my first job was ripping apart five-way copy papers so that the director would have a copy and the anchor and the anchor and the teleprompter had to be taped together. And right. Like, like I really appreciate those days more than ever now having done a whole bunch of better things for a higher amount of money. But you weren't you a garbage man at one point, like before that you're talking about your first job in this business. Yeah, well, I, I was a garbage man during summer times in college. And then years later, after I quit the TV job that I was just describing in Seattle, I called the garbage man guy and said, hey, I just quit my job. Any chance I could come down, you know, I was just trying to figure out what I was doing next, need to pay the bills. They were down to one man crew at that point. They didn't have the guy that was me hanging on the back, the swamper, they called it, who would jump off with the big silver can and, and load the garbage. So they were down to the claw, right? They had the claw like you see now, just like the one guy driving. He could wear a suit to work at this point. They didn't have to get out of the truck. <laughs> you, you were replaced by a machine? You, you couldn't Indeed, even get your in, garbage job The industry back. passed me by, for sure. So <laughs> uh, he says, I do have some cans that need to be made. That's all I got. And so I'm just on TV on a Friday. The next Monday, I'm making garbage <laughs> cans in Kent, Washington in the rain. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I was and I was working I was working my ass off trying to impress these people trying to get a, a bigger job there and I did it so zealously I fucking ran out of cans like there were no more cans I made them all there there's no more cans left <laughs> you so did they your got job rid of me. too well scared by being replaced by the machine <laughs> because the trash claw had already replaced you you showed them that you were going to be an ever zealous maker of cans <laughs> I had to put the wheels on. I had to put the lid on. I was using tools I'd never even heard of. I'm horrible mechanically. Gretchen makes all the Ikea shit at our house. And then the <laughs> next week, I was selling prepaid legal insurance. That's so good. And I thrived at that for about six weeks. Then I sold long distance for MCI. And all the while, I was freelancing in TV. I still wanted to get this ESPN deal. I had been interviewed, but I didn't get it hired. Then I quit my job, which is always smart to do. And for like three or four years, I sold long distance while freelancing in TV, trying to get to ESPN and didn't get there until Keith Olbermann went back to Dan Patrick. Stuart Scott moved up. They needed one more person on ESPN too. And they brought in the garbage man. It's a good story. It's a great story. It's a great story. I mean, I'm sure you get asked, you, you went to Miami, right? You probably get asked to speak or kids, you know, see you on the street, give me some advice. And perseverance is always the number one thing I push. Like, dude, if you care about what you care about, 
don't take a no for an answer, like figure out a way to change their minds. Or I, I have a little more difficulty with advice for young people because my path, uh, I, I can't advise somebody to go into writing and reporting now. I can't, it, it's not, it's not a prudent career choice uh, to, to write meaningful things and have someone pay for them. It wasn't a career. It wasn't a prudent career choice when I made it, but I wasn't making it for money. And so I get approached by a lot of people at doctors and lawyers, like people who have good professions, but you know, are disenchanted because they know that profession better than we do and whatever, they don't feel the same. And they think that what I do is the most fun thing. And they're like, well, how do I do that? And they all want to start on PTI. <laughs> and so when you mention, you know, perseverance, uh, yeah, it starts with city council meetings. And yeah, my path is a weird one. It just went from journalism to being able to artistically uh, try to make the things that I wanted to make so that I would have a uh, some cushy freedoms later in life that weren't beholden to the uh, to the powers of corporate America. Well, I hope journalism is still an avenue for some people. You said it's not a great career. Well, I choice. said writing. I said writing and reporting. Like, it's not, I wouldn't advise it. It's a great career choice, ethically, morally. It's important. Uh, but as we head into a journalism where uh, the politicians are so shame immune that no amount of reported corruption ends up making a dent in actually solving injustices and the corruptions win all over the place, I'm... I'm not hopeless, but as I see local news deserts, as I see journalism falling apart, where only a couple of the newspapers have the wherewithal and resources to actually fight back on things. Um, yeah. How can I how could I advise anybody to choose that as a career path when it feels so, so unsafe? Like you could choose it with your heart. It's just not it's not something I would advise with my head. Yeah. That made me sad, that whole paragraph, just because I'm oh, reading. shit. I've been sad about this. Like, Kenny, you've actually cared about this. I have been sad for 20 years about how little people care about the care and vetting that has to go into journalism so there can be a checks and balances on democracy, on protecting democracy, and never more so, as sad as I was for 15 years, than to have this orange racist turd without a subtlety in his body be able to just crush my industry with just fake news, fake news, as I see propaganda take over all over the infor, infor, you know, misinformation all over the Internet. And I see what my parents were trying to avoid in Cuba when, uh, you know, I talk about this all the time, but it's different. Freedom is different when you've had to fight for it or flee to find it. And some people, uh, they disregard how how much journalism, when done correctly, protects freedom. And that's one of the many reasons you're seeing democracy shake at the moment as as we speak well and additionally when you see a lot of the mainstream media still kind of play the game like it's a horse race like you'll see the interview shows let's bring ted cruz out again to lie to us we know he lied last week but here he joins us again as a guest or scott or you know the the list is long uh right now just for the record i think this is going to run after the election i'm sad to say and so I was with Val Demings. I was, um, I know Marco had some good Bible quotes to fool people, but um, I'm just letting it be known. I supported her. You are uh, publicly telling everybody uh, when this is going to air, what your voting preferences are, 
And yes, the both sides objectivity of an unfair fight makes it so that journalism is trying to be not an activist, uh, somewhat objective as the people listening to this or the people on the other side say, what are you talking about? Journalism is objective. What are you talking about? Journalism aspires to objectivity. All I see is lies. All I see is echo chambers. All I see is political news that has its biases. Uh, but the best of what I'm talking about has value as something that protects democracy. And it's, it's hard supposed to advise. It's hard to advise people to go into it because it's it's in such peril. Yeah. And the, they've crushed a lot of the local reporting. You got, you know, like Sinclair Broadcasting buying up all channels and telling their anchors what they have to say. There, there's a whole bunch of whole bunch of problems. Uh, the whole notion of the both sides, it, I, I appreciate that. That's what a journalist should do. Listen and come to a conclusion and write it fairly based on the information. But you don't report both sides as having equal value. You don't have to both sides me on racism. You don't have to both sides me when one of the sides has facts and the other side, whatever the side is, one of the side has facts and the other just has information that isn't facts. Like we don't. They, I thought there could be many things that would be in peril in an America that was shaking from democracy to uh, women's rights to uh, to, <laughs> to journalism. Uh, but I did not think we would be arguing about facts. Yeah. I, I, that's not what I thought we would be doing. No. I mean, there used to be, and I don't even know how long ago it was, and and it didn't just start with Trump. It was starting before that. But there used to be somewhat of an agreement on here's the thing we're going to argue about. We all agree. Here's the problem. Here's the thing. Now let's you guys be on the left. We'll be on the right. Maybe we meet in the middle. Maybe we don't. But it wasn't one plus one is maybe three. It was always two. It was always two. And some people are now saying it's three and they get the both sides treatment from Chuck Todd or somebody on it. Meet the right. Like that, no, that's, that's what's happening. An unfair fight is being lost by people who are aspiring or dedicated to some sort of fairness, because if it's an unfair fight, the people who are willing to fight most unfairly are probably going to have the advantages. And what you get normalized is now a more extreme right, because we saw some of this happen. It wasn't just that Rush Limbaugh built the vehicle with a dog whistle here in South Florida, but the, the most overt and grotesque and craven of uh, Trump's criminal activities is that at the end, he just had to shout out to the Proud Boys. It had to be that extreme. Mm -hmm. It's not even the shame of the Klan where you had to hide the hood. Now it's boys who are proud. They're, and 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 you've got him shouting them out where that's where the extremities are. And then it pulls the middle over to a place where it's no longer in, in the middle. So, I mean, you know, there are a number of things we sound like old people, and I'm sure our parents and grandparents sounded like this when they were lamenting uh, the dangers of rock and roll. But I just don't see how you can see what it is that's happening in this country or around the world and feel like we're doing this correctly. Oh, yeah. Italy just uh, elected a far right person. Le Pen almost won in in, in France. Uh, oh, and Brazil is selling the rainforest as uh, my like, I don't think people understand what just hit Florida. Maybe they do. They yeah. would have if it had hit Tampa. If it had hit Tampa, it would have been New Orleans all over again. And people would have cared about Tampa. But maybe because it's Fort Myers and places that I vacation, Sanibel Island and and these places that couldn't uh, these tiny towns that maybe people don't know about. 
just erased, just and erased in a way, Kenny, as Florida needs governance, not somebody who's internet interested in internet trolling. We've got a at, at least as I speak to you, I've got a hundred deaths from Hurricane Ian. Yeah. That's 25 more than Puerto Rico. And I'm so I'm sorry. No, no, no. Puerto Rico had 25. We're already in the very early stages of this. We've discovered four times as many bodies because of the things that we're doing to the climate and the man-made things we're doing to the climate because Florida was never meant to be developed like this. We've got too many people living down here. We're screwing with the aquifers, with the with the mangroves, with nature in a way that makes the storms come through the Gulf and is going to just erase towns. The ocean's going to take towns back. You remember when Al Gore was yelling about the environment about 25 years ago and my junior high science teacher mr germino was yelling about it when 1971 when i was a little kid 12 years old and everybody oh a bunch of left-wingers bunch of social they want government control like that was always the attack against anybody who was yelling about something that we need to be warned about and it was dismissed and it was laughed at and they're exaggerating and you still got people today oh it's just weather there's cyclical changes in weather like people just don't look at actual facts that are very readily available if you want to take the time to find out. I mean, the storms, we've had seven giant ones in the Gulf, biggest uh, biggest that you've ever seen is since 2017, these category fours and category fives. This is not this is not normal. This is the the earth has been destroyed by us. Climate scientists, uh, you can question climate science if you want, but climate scientists who are more informed on this, on what the facts are, say that we uh, are their projections were all wrong that they vastly underestimated the harm we've done to the earth that the things that is happening that are happening in the arctic where trees are growing when they're not supposed to and a doomsday glacier is melting at a rate of speed that is much faster than we expected no that the seas are going to rise and this is no longer something that's 100 years away it's happening i mean pakistan is a third of it's underwater china is having once in 500 year droughts there's fire and flood and apocalypse everywhere. Like if you're ignoring it, it's just because you want to. Do you live your life differently because of the calamity you just described or? I've never thought about this stuff until the last few years because it makes me feel so helpless and hopeless to uh, to feel this way. I, I, I'm sure that during the pandemic, some of this, whatever it is, fear and doubt and do you want to bring kids into this world and division and lack of safety i'm sure we all have it as some sort of depressive film on us and then you just find your hopeful spots to find love and joy so that you don't uh, depress your entire listening audience who came here hey let's talk about sports and fun and next thing you know it's like are we gonna be able to have air that we can breathe in 10 years and also shouldn't the news be covering this more it seems like it's a big story the idea that livable climate is in peril yeah, it does to me. And to think we started with your dad pulling that little trick he did and chickens falling out it's of It's what sky. he's going to be doing at the very end. It's going to be the last move as the earth explodes. It's going to be like <laughs> just my dad's going to do the handshake. We're all going to howl with laughter and then sink into the sea as fire engulfs us. Well, hopefully we had a good time on the way. Um, <laughs> have you lost relationships over everything we just talked about? That you, uh, I've had you them had... harmed. I've had them damaged. Yeah. I've Same. had, I don't know anybody who hasn't really, I don't know 
anybody who hasn't been surprised to see some things stripped bare uh, in a way that can't be unseen. Well, and also, I mean, going back to something you touched on before, there was this notion that people with certain views had to kind of, you know, the old coming out from under the rocks had to kind of hide it. And then Trump and those who supported him and covered for him made it okay to come out and just say these things used to have to be subtle. Like you said, dog whistles. Now it's just straight up. I'm saying it. I mean, look, look at what Fox news runs. They just, so they show people who aren't white committing crimes on just this, you know, recycled re B roll over and over and over to, to, to play into that whole white fear thing. Right. Oh, but Kenny, this must feel just listening to this. I don't know who's listening to your podcast, but I would assume that they're just you and me right now. Uh, <laughs> I would assume that there is some echo chamber stuff. You and I are aligned here and we tend to agree on the same things. Um, mostly I would say I would wonder though, because this part I underestimated, um, we could blame Fox news if we want, and we can blame Trump if we want, but I didn't know that stuff could land in mass. Right. Like I, I've had, because I'm spending too much time in these circles, I was not aware that, uh, that the extremities of racism and misogyny and fear of other can be fomented to such a place that a big portion of America would be like, yep. I ride with that. Yeah. I ride. I support that. And um, I that did not I did not in my head have that idea of this country. I no. could be plenty cynical. I'm a journalist by nature. It's not like I'm not used to questioning, but I didn't have the, the large swaths of this country being that divided on stuff that I just thought was about grace and decency and don't be an asshole. Yeah. Well, I mean, even like when January 6th happened. I had some conversations and the knee jerk quick response from everyone who was quote unquote on the other side. What about the black lives matter riot? You know, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. First, a lot of that was not even from those who were in these peaceful marches. There were other outsiders who tried to make them look bad by causing this. That's been found to be true. Yes. Some of them got out of hand beyond that. There were two different things. One was about these, civil rights marches for justice because of what was happening with the, you know, indiscriminate killing of black people for no reason. The other was people trying to overturn an election and take over a capital, two different things. So you don't get to just trot out. Yeah. What about the time? You know, no, you do though. You do because it's not about a fair fight. It's not about getting the right side of an argument. It's not about being consistent. It's not being principled. It's fomenting the fear to, uh, to protect the power and to feel like a cry for equality is a threat because the, the power must be protected. The power in the hands that it is in, you have seen it. It's too craven. It's too brazen. It's too obvious when it goes against the will of the people, Kenny, on something like a woman's body. When it goes that overtly against the will of the people people it can't be ignored how how craven it is about just making sure that you want the power at all costs how come and i'd like you to speak for all cubans here and and exiles why historically and tell me if my numbers are wrong it seems that those who came or the descendants of those who came and escaped this tyrannical rule in cuba from castro right somehow were led to believe the Republicans are on your side and the Democrats aren't. They somehow, am I wrong that, that a majority feel that way? 
Uh, you are not wrong. The polling data suggests that I, in many ways, am confused by uh, my people in this regard uh, because I don't understand how it is that we can fall for Donald Trump isn't trying to be a dictator. Right. He's I the first. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the most I, but, obvious one. But I don't understand how it is that uh, that could be viewed as man of the people either or. If you had somebody who had five children uh, by three women, that that would have been the scandal of our times once upon a time. If I make that the president and it's not a white man, uh, because I don't know if it's the power of a suit and wealth that made it so that we would overlook all of the things that we overlooked. But the the history lesson on this is simply that uh, Cubans, by and large, uh, have been given a different uh, list of freedoms getting to the United States. I don't know if you know what wet foot, dry foot is, but 90 yeah. feet, uh, 90, 90 miles off the shore, we're allowed freedom in this country uh, in a way that Haitians are not or have not been. Cubans have a different uh, social status in America. They've been granted the American dream, the freedom of the American dream when they get to land here on, uh, imagine the desperation here, Kenny, when you're talking about leaving your family behind the way mine did, not knowing if you'd ever see it again. Uh, some people literally throwing their lives to the wind on boats made of tires or whatnot because they want to get it here to what the ideal is. Somehow, the party that protects that ideal through history, through Bay of Pigs, through everything else is viewed as the Republican Party. And no other issue, uh, race, misogyny, uh, abortion, anything trumps uh, freedom uh, or the belief that somehow... Freedom is is more protected and Cubans are more protected by the Republican Party than by the Democratic Party. I don't believe that it's so. Uh, and I don't know how you can look at what's presently happening in the world and feel that. But uh, it's the best explanation I got for something yeah. that doesn't have a whole lot of sensible explanation to me. Well, I think what happens is there's always been this note. You can call the Democrats socialists or neo-communists, whatever. And there's this quick reaction because Castro was communist, right? So, oh, these guys are the bad guys because they got called socialists and communists. Therefore, I'm with the guys who are calling those guys that. I mean, those words don't even mean anything anymore. It's true. just something people just tramp, tra trot out fascism and communism and socialism and authoritarianism uh, just to, to win arguments or to, to end discussions that are reasonable. My producer, Paul, said, Kenny, Wondering if we want to lighten the mood for the last 10 minutes or so. So here's what I'll say. The Q, the U.S. political conversation, it's just, it's been, it's important. It's just, it's been had, it continues to be had. I feel like we've hit it. Like the Cuba situation, I find incredibly interesting. I was just wondering for the last 10 minutes or so, do we want to bring it back full circle to the ESPN side where you started? My question is what you guys are both doing now. Like there's an association with gambling companies. There's the content space, the future of the content space. You guys are two guys that people have grown up watching and now kind of off doing your own thing. I think that's very interesting. I, I'm not taking away from the conversation you guys are having. Not at all. I, I'm just, I, it's a question for me. I want to, I'm, I'm with them, Kenny. I'm with I them. I, I get rid of the last 10 minutes or whatever. No, 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 it is no, 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 no that's not what I'm saying. Days, he yes. just said without saying it, you're making everyone sad, guys. Yeah. Can we just get funny again? Yeah. Okay. Uh, dance, clown. Dance. Fuck. No, that's. I'm with you. It's good producing. All the good stuff stays. In my world, 
I always like the reality you you brought about taking people beyond the curtain. I think it's fun in a podcast. Everything that just happened should stay in the show that we had this discussion because he's right because I do care about this stuff. And, and it's funny how we turned. We were just talking about frivolous shit and your dad's Oh, but it's hard. No, but here's the thing, though, and Kenny. One's, okay. One sentence and, and we just go down that path. No, this, is, this is the terrain. Uh, it's well it's well covered terrain and we didn't need to do the politics stuff. But I would just say to you in general, it is more challenging doing a show today when I don't want to ignore that the real world is happening all over the place. And it's quaint to think of trying to keep it out of the Kaepernick arena now given what you've seen the last five years, that you can't keep any of this stuff out of the arena. But go ahead. Ask me whatever the questions are that your producer with bloodlust and and with just a need for clicks needs to ask me about the ESPN stuff so I can flame somebody and Kenny pa Kenny Main's podcast can get a bump because, uh, because all of a sudden I've been aggregated. Damn it. Do your job, Dan Lebetard. No, I, I like the reality of who you are because you're deeper than... Just some guy joking around about sports. I am interested in what's going on at your company. You guys signed this giant thing with DraftKings, our arch rival, because I'm with Caesars, Caesars Sportsbook. Download now. Um... When that happened, draft uh, King Sportsbook. Download now. Don't do that. Go to Caesars at Caesars.com, I think. If you go um, to Caesars.com, X out and go to DraftKings.com. Here's a question. And leave for a you. note in the comments that uh, that Kenny Maine stinks and is uh, is bad for the Caesars brand. Does DraftKings have a hotel on the Las Vegas trip? No. Does DraftKings have a Nobu? No. What does DraftKings is just for gambling, right? Just bet on sports. What do you mean just for gambling? How dare you? How dare you suggest that DraftKings isn't also for fantasy? And also has t-shirts. Um, tell me how that deal came together. Not that I care because it's an arch rival, but did they come to you like, man, you're really good. We want to be supportive. Or did you guys reach out? And kind of like, hey, all you guys involved in this space, who wants to be our biggest supporter? Uh, I, When I left ESPN, the thing that I wanted more than anything was maximum freedom, not beholden to anyone, not beholden to... I, I, I wanted to be my own boss, and DraftKings was the one. As we, we started to do the traditional negotiations with legacy media partners, and those were interesting and had options and would have probably in some ways been easier... But all of them had either a paywall or some sort of compromise that would have had me working for somebody. This one does not. DraftKings was willing to just support what it is that we were doing uh, because they wanted to get into the content game and didn't know how to get into the content game. They wanted to learn. And so we saw as we uh, I did not plan this when I left ESPN. I did not know that this was possible. We spent six months studying options and eventually it became obvious that the best one was this one, that this was the one that would leave us the most alone to try and fund us and help us, uh, help us build what we're building, which is a media company that now has 30 employees. I want in Miami here, a place that matters to me. I want to be able to offer some jobs that wouldn't otherwise be available in this market, in the media as the media shrinks. 
And um, and I want to do something that makes documentaries and does storytelling and uh, invests some of this money that DraftKings is investing in us. I love how you made a town you love more prominent than it was. Chicago has media, LA has media, New York, Atlanta, and Miami is a huge town, huge influence. But you singularly kind of like lifted it up like, hey, I'm going to do this thing from this place I love and we're going to make it a centerpiece culturally and and also for the sports, right? Like, I'm super I'm super proud of that yeah. uh, because uh, because people told me at every step along the way that we wouldn't be able to do it. Like I told you, they they wanted me to work in New York and Los Angeles, that this was not a place that this this could exist. And yeah, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that it, it, as the media shrinks, uh, we're able to provide some jobs uh, for some people that might not otherwise be available here. They might be available, but not here. And also interesting, uh, I'm both a friend and a fan of a guy you're working with, John Skipper, our old president at ESPN, that you've partnered up with him in a whole bunch of different ways. Tell me about that friendship and that association and what he's done for you and you for him. Uh, I tell everybody that John Skipper and I weren't friends, uh, didn't become friends until after he left ESPN uh, because I did not know how much he was protecting me or opening up avenues or really just allowing us. Cause it's just Kenny, the most important thing to me on work. It's, it's my imprinting. It's my parents came as exiles. Uh, again, they had money, they had not immigrants, exiles. The family had money. They came because they wanted a different life experience. They wanted freedom. And so front of lobe with me, I don't make money decisions. I make freedom decisions. And I was worried that being at Disney and ESPN, I never wanted to work for him because I thought there would be compromises on what it is that we were doing that I was not comfortable with. I did not want to work for or with the sensibilities of others, but evidently in ways that I did not know, I was protected there because they knew I was Skipper's guy, but I didn't know I was Skipper's guy because uh, he uh, he was giving us the power that if you've talked with Dan Patrick and, and Oberman here, you know that the way the culture gets controlled there is you don't set precedent with anything. Dan Patrick wants a television in his office. He's about to do the biggest show on television a show that would probably be worth $500 million to a $1 billion today if it were on television. He needs a television in his office so that he can see the sports before he goes on there to talk about the sports. No, nope, can't give him a television because if you give one to him in his office, then we got to give it over there to that guy or that woman in her office, and we can't do that. I didn't want any of that. I wanted, uh, I wanted freedom, and he protected me there, and then his career, uh, you know, went in a different direction when uh, he had to leave ESPN and we became friends after after that. And I didn't talk to him about any of this stuff. I didn't know at the time that I was going to be leaving ESPN. He didn't know he was going to be leaving ESPN, but uh, he was at the zone doing, you know, whatever it is, the multi-billion dollar deals that they're doing over there. And he wanted to do something more fun with the last part of his career. And I wanted to do something more fun with the last part of my career. So I asked him to build something. I don't know business, don't like business, not interested in business. So I asked him to to build a company for us. And he's building, you know, he's been building it for a couple of years. And you're having fun. You're You're doing more with greater freedom than you ever had before. That is correct. That, uh, I mean, yes, that's, I would advise people, whether it's persistence or otherwise, I would advise people bet on yourself. Yeah, uh, there's a guy named Steve Chris, Daily Racing Forum. His book title was, I believe, Betting on Myself. Told his own story, but 
a whole bunch of us have gone through that. Charlie Steiner, friend of, a friend of mine, and, and he was always a good mentor to me way back in the day, he said the greatest ability one can have is, is kind of the ability to say no, right? Like to be, to have, op, like, that sounds pretty good. Typically, you'd think I would go for that, but I'm going to say no because I think on my own I can do this or that or partner with somebody else. It wasn't really, though, very, for me, it wasn't that aware. It wasn't that conscious. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, I, I'm actually someone who aims to please largely and have turned employers into, you know, sort of parental figures uh, mm -hmm. largely. So I I have not been one to say no. And I don't need to tell you that at ESPN, uh, there are many ways to climb. Uh, none of them are saying no. Exactly. Sure. None of them. Like you have to say yes to everything and they will like they the ethos there is one of really writing people. I mean, Stephen A. Smith is talking too much in too many places. It's not healthy for him to to be doing that much content. But uh, I'm, I don't know how much no he is saying to anybody. I I wasn't conscious about saying no. I, I aim to please until I can until I arrived at a set of circumstances that would allow me to break free and craft something that was my own. But it, I, I don't want to say that I, I was trying to build this at ESPN, Kenny, like mm -hmm. I, with a little more support in places. If Skipper were still there, I'd probably still be there. Yeah. You talked about documentaries. Have you thought of, maybe you're already working on such a thing and maybe I don't know about one you already did. You can inform me something about Cuba, something about everything we talked about previously. Uh, yeah, we've got a first look deal with Apple and uh, we uh, there's there's a project that me and Billy Corbin are working on and we're going to get into a bunch of them, though. We've got we've got a lot of different ideas and I'm eager for that portion of my career to uh, to start. Uh, we're doing a lot of stuff with uh, with Adam McKay, the filmmaker, where he has been just uh, flabbergasting in his support of he kind of saw everything that happened with us at Disney and uh and ESPN at the end and he's just been real eager to be helpful in a way that uh has allowed us into uh into the industry uh in a way that has some shortcuts in it uh, I read for Adam McKay for a movie once somehow I got called down and I, I memorized the bit it was lengthy too it's like well I think I got it I'm close I go in the room and he starts peppering me with sports questions. We're talking about fucking Cubs middle relief. I don't know what we're talking about, but nothing to do with his stupid script. All of which I said, hey, I don't remember the first word of what I memorized because you just took me on a nine minute tributary. He said, I don't care. Just do whatever you want. And I did. I didn't get it, but it, it was it was sure fun. That was That was a fun experience. He's very interesting guy. He's made some amazing serious shows like they're comically driven but yet serious points right like he kind of can do both things oh i i don't associate him with anything that's poorly made it's not just don't look up it's succession it's dead to me on netflix it's a q anon movie or the invisible pilot on sure. hbo i don't I mean, he doesn't, and he's responsible for a generation of comedy with Talladega Nights and Step Brothers, and yeah. and really the last and Anchorman, the last batch of comedies. We were just talking about this the other day. The it's been ten years since anybody did a comedy that we were all talking about like that. That genre is just about dead. Being able to reach everybody with something that's funny by word of mouth. Well, what's important is you go to Adam McKay right away and say, you know that Kenny Main pitch, that's now almost a year old. 
let's let's get moving on that one adam Yes. Uh, and all he's going to do when you call him is talk to you about olden polonies. And uh, he's just going to just he's going to wear you out, uh, you know, just uh, trying to ask you questions about uh, Mo Cheeks and the uh, the early 80s, 76ers. Uh, did you know Hank Goldberg? Well, <laughs> um, yes, I would say I did. He was very mean to me. We uh, we come on. We did it. No, we did what well, we did a bit. We did a bit on our show where we did a trilogy instead of a eulogy because you have to you have to say nice things whenever someone's passed. And we were just talking about, but what if he was really mean to you? What and he wasn't uh Hank Goldberg was very nice. Uh, a lot of people say nice things about him like you, Kenny. Yes. Uh, if they uh you know they weren't someone who was threatening him actively for his position at ESPN the way that I was. So uh he, uh, I saw a different side of Hank than than you did. If that's the best trilogy, I'm <laughs> I'm going to stand by. He was great to me because we did these horse race shows together for years, and I knew him back in the old ESPN two, the original Sports Night ESPN two. Here comes Hammer and Hank, right? Had the legacy from you know being Jimmy the Greek's understudy and all that, right? We might we might leave li leave your trilogy out because we don't want to not fondly oh no i already got point. headlines for it i thought it would be funny as i missed just it i thought it would be funny as performance art i don't think you should leave it out i think we should talk more honestly about people after they've died i don't think that richard nixon's eulogy should be about opening free trade to china <laughs> i believe that we should speak openly when someone has died and i believe i i i still have to laugh at it because it's it is horribly unkind but i think one of these blogs aggregated the context of what we said, which was trying to talk about the entirety of the relationship yeah. and had me merely dancing on his grave. Oh. Levitard colon Goldberg was an asshole to people or something like that, which is uh, it was too soon then. And it's too soon now, but he was an asshole to me. Maybe you just saw him on a bad day. Maybe he had a tough beat that was day and he took it out on you. Years. It was a bad <laughs> 14 so years. I was with Jay Privman and Hank at Turfway Park in northern Kentucky, and it's snowing. It's, it's just horrible. And we're betting, or Hank's betting on just some random, God knows what track he's betting on, Ellis Park or something. And his horse is up by 15 lengths, turning for home. And I look at, I, you got it. And he and Jay just stared me down the rest of the stretch as that lead diminished and his horse loses by a head and they blame me for the loss. And should have. <laughs> and I have changed my opinion now on Hank Goldberg, and you're the asshole. No wonder, because if one of my friends did that to me, I too would uh, spend the rest of my life trying to bury the guy who is coming for my job at ESPN. I want to end on something big, up, something that's dear to my heart. When I went to Las Vegas at the old MGM, which is now Bally's, owned by Caesars, um, they Soon had to be owned by DraftKings. Not true. They had Highlight, the fastest ball sport in the world. I think I'm the last fan in America. It turns out I'm wrong because you, you are as well, and there are others. And I loved Highlight. People are like, what's Highlight? You have to explain it. It's a wicker basket. It's a ball. It's a three walled racquetball game, essentially. Win, play, show, exacted trifecta, daily double wagering, spectacular seven scoring system. We went all the time. That was our number one entertainment deal in Las Vegas in my junior and senior year in college. Cause you could go with nothing. It was free. The last three games, you could show up with $10. You could bring five friends and bet a parlay together, whatever. 
Hylai slowly died in America, and the last place still is in Miami, and and we're trying to keep it going. Tell tell me about your devotion to it. Like, is it is it a lark or is it sincere? Like, what is your relationship with the game of Hylai? It began as a lark many years ago. We were so drunk on power and popularity that we said out loud into microphones, you know how big and bad we are? We can save Highlight. It's dying. <laughs> it's sad. It's uh, it's lonely. It's a warehouse that uh, once upon a time in the 80s during Miami Vice, it would uh, house 3,000, 4,000 people on a Friday night. Yeah. And then Miami realized, well, wait a minute. This is sad. There are other things to do. <laughs> and it slowly died. And we said we were going to rescue it with our young and popular show. And every, every month for a long time, we put thousands of people in there. And it was, uh, you know, the, one of the the smoking room was uh, covered in leprosy and disease, <laughs> and it it was it it had forty years of losing baked into the walls. Uh, I would argue that there were uh, sexual diseases and dysentery in in and around uh, the areas we were in. However, we had a good run, but Dania Highlight then closed. So now there is one fronton that we know of that's in America. I keep getting told there are others in Florida, but this sport is this Hispanic sport that is a lot of fun. You described it very well, has one fronton left, and we have been uh, pouring some life and some lifeblood into. Uh, I think we were on ESPN recently. The, Cest the Cyclones, the Sesta yeah. Cyclones are champions. We have one of seven Sesta weight makers in the world. Manny is, uh, and we own a team. And uh, we've at Metal Arc Media. One of the things I wanted to do with my freedom is ridiculous, stupid things, and so we own uh, a highlight team. And and there are some people truly trying to make it let it survive. And it's it's curious because people kind of laugh about oh the silly sport, and they got the cesta and the pelota, which means ball in Spanish. Um, but the, there are real people who really did suffer for the fact that this industry went downhill, like. Guys who play highlight, that's what they do. They're support people, the guy who makes the Cessnas, right? Like it really did matter. It wasn't a trivial thing that, that so much of it fell away. Um, it was something that was fun, but it is all but dead, Kenny. And you We're are- We're bringing it back. You are, you have found the lane in this podcast to resuscitate highlight as a sport. Somebody who didn't know now is going to find highlight at a little Magic City casino- where I recently recently saw Toots and the Maytals, and Toots is no longer with us. We lost them during the pandemic. But it is every bit the place. You have this special undercurrent of degeneracy in here. I'm coming down to help. You yes, you like this stuff. You you are a Gulfstream man. You are you are a gambling force. You like the you like the dirty, dirty games, and you are here for people being in a smoke-filled environment and uh, you know, making a lot of noise around the spectacle. It's the game of my youth. One of my favorite things I ever did at ESPN one night, they said, you guys pick the top plays. Like usually the PAs would pick some great catch or whatever, some bicycle goal in soccer. So for my five top plays, I had them record Dania Highlight, Benny Bueno, the PR guy helped out, set it up. And I, every time it came to my play was another Highlight play. 
and I'm proud of that achievement. Benny and, was good. Skinny, yeah. number six. Yeah. I remember Benny. I remember Benny at Daniel Highlight. Where's that producer of yours? Where's that asshole know-nothing who thinks he can boss around two people around here? We're ending this on my terms right now, sir. We're ending this right now. I salute you for bossing around Kenny Maine. You will not boss me around. I have found my freedom. Uh, thank you for having me on your program. I appreciate it, Kenny. Es muy necesario que habla muy despacio, por favor. Pilota, you called it. You pelota. called it a pilota. No, pelota. 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 Hey, Maine is a production of me, Kenny Maine, and Odyssey. Our senior producer is Paul Aspen. Our executive producer is Jody Avergan. And our executive producer for Odyssey is Lena Glazer. If you like our show, please rate us, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe.